Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech Talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Heidi ho, folks, and thanks for clicking on the link for another episode of Tech Talk with the Wizard of Modern Wonders, Mr. Matthew Dickerson. And a big old Heidi ho to you too, Matt. Yeah, Heidi ho to you too. Thanks, James. Uh, so, yeah, what's, what's news in the last week or so? Well, news in the last week has all been about QR codes. That's yeah. been the real focus for things this week. As we go through this continual lockdown and people have got to use QR codes more and more. People didn't know what QR, what QR codes QR were codes. A, year, a year and a <laughs> half ago. If you know ago, what a QR code is now, everyone knows what a QR code is. been way too long. Everyone is an expert on QR codes, but it's been interesting. I had a, a bit of feedback from one of our listeners again. And when we've all got to walk into restaurants, retail, it's everywhere we go at the moment, you've got to scan your QR code. But you don't take much notice of it. No. And we did a story a little while ago about someone going and sticking fake QR codes over the top of the real ones. And so we kind of think you'd pick up on that. But one of the the lessons from this week is really make sure when you do scan that QR code, you do have a look at it. Because I saw the funny situation where someone was scanning a QR code walking into a business, assuming that that was the business, and they actually had a look at what was happening rather than blindly scan it in, check in, away I go. And that business I was scanning into wasn't the business I was scanning into. Oh, really? There was another code there? Well, it was actually a head office of that particular business had handed out QR codes to all of their franchises. The same code. The same code. No one clicked to the fact that each QR code was specific and unique to not only the business, but the actual individual location. So this person was (laughs) clever enough to scan the QR code and actually look at what was on screen and then say to the business manager there, hey, I don't think this is your business. I think it's somewhere located in Sydney, not in a regional area. This looks like a bit of a problem. So if there hadn't been any contact tracing there, it would have been, right, you're in Sydney and in Orange and in Tempworth yeah. and in Dubbo all at the same time. Because it <laughs> would have been around this, the place. Yeah, it would have been this wow. incredible process where these people were all in these different places. So the, the lesson here is... Doctor Who or something, yeah. Yeah, that's right, all at the same time. The lesson here, I suppose, is just make sure that when you scan that QR code, remember that it's just a computer talking language, the same as if you saw something written in Japanese or a different language, you don't understand what it is. But when we put our phone in front of it, we can actually translate that and see where it's going. So just be aware of that, I suppose. Yeah, and just have a look as you're as you scanning. Have a look, I know. It sounds scary, doesn't it? And then probably choose to check out as well. Uh, that's the other thing that well, we always forget to do. so much at this stage, James. Yeah, I don't right. want to go too far over the top there. I've still got to teach myself how to check out. <laughs> Right, well, you've thrown together another awesome swathe of stories for us today, Matt. I see there's a bit on flying cars, some gear about atomic clocks, and there's even something for the vacuum cleaner enthusiasts of the world with a bit of OCD on the side. We're going to kick off with some real A-game material, though. Get a load of this, folks. I'm not going to lie. I've been waiting for personal jetpack technology since I was about seven years old, and that constitutes a long time, folks. Bring me some good news now, Matt. Good news is that you remember, and this probably was where your first fantasy came from, watching James Bond, Thunderball, running away from the bad guys, gets onto the roof of a building, and of course, what's James Bond do? Straps on the jetpack, right. and off he flies. That was 1965, <laughs> Thunderball came out. Yeah, I wasn't seven years old in 1965. I wasn't <laughs> a twinkle right. in the milk eye then, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> so that was when people said, wow, that sounds pretty cool. I hardly wait till we can do that. And we know we haven't been able to do that yet. And I thought the military might have been the first place that would finally develop this sort of technology. And we've seen little bits and pieces of jetpacks that have been tried here and there, but nothing Mm. really that good. But I think it's actually going to be 
recreational users that are going to drive this technology rather than the military. Because at the moment, both in the UK and the US, you can go along and pay money, and I'll talk about how much in a minute because it's a lot, you can pay money to strap a jetpack on and actually take off and fly around for maybe five or six minutes. Now, right now, I understand that you, some tourist operations you can do this over a, a bay, and you, there's a water jetpack. So it's firing water out the back, and you've got a big snorkel that's attached to the to the water, and and you suck water up and you blast it out the, through the jet. So that's actually available now. But this is different. This is this is a jet engine on your back. This is a jet engine blasting. So those water ones, yeah, yeah right. the water ones are pretty cool. I've, yeah, I've yeah. seen those on videos, and they look pretty cool. But this is actually the classic jetpack where you've got a bunch of fuel on your back and a nice little jet Straight on your back. Out of James Bond. Playbook. Exactly right. And you can fly around. Now, you do get tethered because you can imagine how unstable it is. Yeah. And, and one of the places that you can do it at, you've got to do a two-day training course to go and have a bit of fun on a jetpack. So not the sort of thing you do with your kids on holidays. Yeah, I would imagine it's pretty important because we take friction for, for granted when we drive a car. Friction's a really important force. Well, we hate friction when we're driving, but we love friction when we're driving. <laughs> <laughs> but it allows us to steer. When you're in air, which is, well, not frictionless, but it's close too, right? Yeah, yeah it's very easy to lose control and things can go very pear-shaped. You can um, log on to YouTube, folks, and and watch Neil Armstrong um, test drive his Lunar Lander, and he actually crashes it, um, but he uh, he ejects right at the very last moment that he's um, able to safely, and he survived, obviously, to be able to go on to, to land on the moon later on. But, yeah, flying yeah. A, a, something that is rocket-propelled with Earth's gravity is exceptionally dangerous. Absolutely, and that's why you're tethered. So it still sounds pretty dangerous to me, but one company, as I said, two-day training course, you pay about $5,000 for that two-day training course to then go and be able to be qualified, in inverted commas, to be able to fly this particular jetpack. So they tether you on, they tie a wire rope to the ground and they tie it to you and you go up several metres up into the air and fly around a bit. Something fun, yeah. But you can't kind of just unclip that tether and then go, what up, where's James going? There's that dot (laughs) in the distance there. Oh no, he's ran out of fuel. It's like a helium balloon. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't take long to lose sight. (laughs) So the idea there is that you will be able to fly around and the next stage after that will be eventually they'll have the people that are good enough with their tethering to then untether and start flying around. The military is still talking about this and even places like rescue organisations. You can imagine trying to drop down into a bunch of trees when you're trying to rescue a bushwalker that might have fallen down a cliff, for example, helicopter hovering above all that, this wire going down, windy Mm. conditions. This sort of jetpack, I think, would be fantastic for those sort of rescue operations. Imagine getting doctors with jetpack licences to go in there and help people out in that situation. Yeah, But right. I think it's going to be recreation, and I can hardly wait till I can see somewhere that I can have a go on one day. <laughs> I think it sounds fantastic. I've, I've already seen footage of the military um, yeah, doing boarding operations, Yeah, boarding, oh, sorry, it was the Navy, um, boarding ships and stuff like that and mm. running drills with these things. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Robert Downey Jr. makes it look so easy. Surely it can't be so hard. But Well, he's got four points of contact. He's got his feet and his hands, so yeah. he's kind of got four points of balance there, whereas this jetpack's just got one. So it would be easy if you're Iron Man, surely. I think the age of Iron Man is upon us, folks. I tell you, folks, this episode just gets better and better. The race to produce marketable flying cars is gathering speed. Pardon the pun. Now, this is different to the flying car races we talked about previously that were in Outback Australia. This is the real Jetsons deal. They're looking to have a car that you can fly. Well, I don't know if it's a car you can fly... Or a plane plane you can drive drive. on the road? That's the big question. And that's actually a really important question because who is the authority that registers you? Is it the authority that would normally Ah. register a car? (laughs) Or is it the authority that would normally register an aeroplane? Or is it both? Yeah. Now we have a brand new authority to do flying car registry. 
Well, maybe, maybe we do need that. More government departments. Fantastic, James. Who brought you along? <laughs> so Klein Vision overseas has now done its first test flight. And when I looked at it, yeah, I'm not sure. What do you reckon? You had a look at the picture. Do you reckon it's yeah. more a car that flies? Or I, well, to me, yeah, you've got it's got the four wheels in the uh, orientation that you would see in a car, but then it's got these wings that are coming out the side and a big long tail. Mm. Um, and I just, yeah, it, uh, to me it looked like a plane that, that I'd land as I was driving a car, I guess, yeah. And the wings fold down to the side, but it would still yeah. be pretty tricky parking in the supermarket car park, wouldn't <laughs> oh, it? It was a bit no. too long to just slip into one yeah. of those little parking spots. And look, you still need a runway. It's yeah. not a case of just um, getting sick of the um, the uh, freeway traffic or whatever and, and deciding to, to let it all go and just take the sky. Yeah, so this particular flight, they did a test flight with it. They had this little flight from Nitra to Bratislava. It's about a 100-kilometre journey. This thing mm. does about... 190 kilometres an hour, yeah, cruises about 8,200 feet, so it doesn't need to be pressurised at that. Yeah, right. So you've got something that you can drive along the road normally and then, as you say, get somewhere you can take off. Presumably they don't like you taking off just by going fast enough on the highway and then taking <laughs> off. <laughs> and then you can fly between places. So I think... The idea sounds fantastic. I just don't know that you can see it being used for the common daily sort of yeah, commute. That a nightmare you might be for handy. air traffic controllers as well. I oh, think. Imagine um, that. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to keep control of all this. And then the other thing is, it's, this has got a, a petrol engine in it. It's a BMW sourced engine in this one. And I know friends of mine that don't maintain their vehicles that well. Now, planes, mm. they're very strict in the maintenance regime they have to go through. Yeah. Certain things have to be replaced after a certain number of hours, that sort of thing, because you don't want planes falling out of the sky. But if you had a car that could fly, do you then have to get a bit stricter on its maintenance regime because you don't want this driving along with a petrol engine and suddenly, whoops, haven't changed the oil for a while and yeah, it seizes up. Yeah, the lights up. come on. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the low oil lights on while you're at 8,000 feet above the ground. Fantastic. Oh, jeepers, so there's yeah. a few things to sort out there. I actually think the air speeders that we've talked about before, the racing series that we talked about, I actually think we'll get to the point where we have personal transport vehicles that fly. And these are the ones with the four props on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they don't drive per se, but I think we'll get to there before we'll get to mm. a flying car in common usage because I think the idea that you can just walk out to your front yard, take off vertically, get into the supermarket, do your shopping, fly back home, job done. Because I think there's already somewhere with, with taxis where they've got uh, these things going that it can take a, a payload of like four passengers or something like that. Is yeah, that right? Dubai has had some flying taxi experiments going for a while. There's a couple yeah. places around the world, but Dubai seems to be the place with the fewest regulations for anything. So <laughs> I, I think flying taxis over there will probably if happen you can pay sooner. money for it, then it's I think that's doable. basically it, yeah. Yeah, right, okay. And so in, in that scenario, I think that's where we'll get to. So flying cars, as much as we dream of it, and we keep hearing that it's the next big thing, I think personal air transport vehicles, does that sound sexy enough, trendy enough? Yeah. Something like that I think will come before the flying car. And we don't have to worry about the cars crashing into our rooftops uh, tops for another 15 to 20 years at least. Then. Yeah, that Probably. would be a bit scary, wouldn't it? It's scary enough when a plane comes down in a suburban area, but with all yeah. these ones zipping around above us, yeah. noise and then <laughs> someone that doesn't change their oil. You've got some good news for the OCD clean freaks as well. There's a new vacuum cleaner out. I don't know if it's good news or bad news, actually, yeah. because if you're a bit OCD and you vacuum your house and you think it's clean, I'm not sure that you want this Dyson V15 to come along and tell, tell you... you that you've done a terrible job. <laughs> that's you right. missed a bit. So it's actually got a little 
a green laser that shows out in front of where it's vacuuming. Not so much so we can see it, but that's more so we can actually do some detection of what it's picking up. And tell you how dirty it is. And that's it. It tells you how dirty it is. How terrible is that? And I read one review on it, and this particular person went around, used a vacuum cleaner, and then looked at his little graph on the actual vacuum cleaner itself. It's got a little LCD graph. And it told him that approximately 242 million particles between 10 and 60 microns were picked up in his vacuuming efforts. And it's even worse than that because particles between 60 and 100 microns had 2.7 million particles. So he thought that his place was clean and it was disgusting. Then he put it away, charged up and then came out and did it again and still picked up another 100 million (laughs) particles. So that's when you say... There's mental health issues to worry about here. That's right. So anyone with OCD, I I actually thought the same as you. Anyone that must be really clean, go and get this. But then when I saw that, I went, Mm. oh, don't get it. Because you just vacuum to the point where there was nothing left in your house. You'd vacuum the carpet away because you're picking up all these bits and pieces. It is fascinating, though, just to imagine how many of these little particles are in our house at any given point in time. That's right. And even the clean houses. And as a science teacher, I would be saying that a little bit of exposure to some dirt is actually probably going to be pretty good for you because you need to keep your immune system active. Yeah, Yeah, well, that's probably true, too. But the other thing I thought, which is good from this, is that if my wife says to vacuum the house, it's all disgusting and dirty, I can say I don't need to worry about doing it anymore, darling, because it's no matter how much I vacuum, it's going to have all these little particles left. So I might as well give up now. (laughs) Admit defeat and give up. I'm not sure if that'll get me out of the work or or just get me in trouble. Uh, It's a slippery slope. um, And so I'm just going to avoid it and not buy that particular brand uh, or model, I should say. Let's talk about another ransomware attack. There's been, been another big one this time. It was on a software company that monitors services for many different companies around the world. So rather than hitting up each little individual company. We've now got this ransomware that that goes and, and hits the trunk of the tree. Yes, you're right. It's a very clever move by ransomware. And I hate using the word clever and mm. ransomware in the same sentence. But it is. This particular company, I won't mention their name, but I actually did a fair bit of work for them probably 13 or 14 years ago where they used to fly me across to Vegas and used to talk at their conferences and used to do some round-world trips for them and talk at a, a bunch of different places. I remember being in Dubai and Paris and all sorts of places talking for them. And it's very clever because any IT firm that's managing a number of different clients, a number of their servers, trying to keep all those servers up to date, make sure all their patches are in place, make sure they've got backups that are working, enough hard drive space, all those things. It's a lot of work from those IT companies to manage all that. So this particular company helps manage all of that by basically having a small little tool installed on each server and it feeds the information back to the IT company that's managing it. So it centralises it. Centralises it. makes it so good. And I remember when I had my IT services business, it was fantastic. We used to have screens in the business. We'd keep a health check on all these different businesses we're looking after. So this ransomware attack, rather than go and attack those individual businesses, individual servers, they've said, as you said, go for the trunk of the tree. They've gone for the services company and they've got all this natural linkage to all these other businesses. So now they can hit two companies with ransomware attacks. They can say to the management company, hey, if you don't pay us a lot of money, and $70 million was the last ransomware demand they made, oh, goodness me. then all these companies that you're managing their service for were going to attack them. But then they also went and attacked some of the individual companies. And so one, for example, was a supermarket chain, 800 stores in a supermarket chain. They only asked for $5 million. $5 million would be nothing to them. So they're likely to get these amounts being paid out. So they can do a double whammy, mm. ask for individual amounts from all these businesses and ask for a larger amount from the central management company. It's pretty scary stuff. I can't help but feel that there's a really naughty 12-year-old sitting at it behind a PC somewhere in the world, and he's behind all this. And that he's now got 
tens of millions of dollars in a bank account and says, Mum and Dad, I'll buy you a new house. Yeah, wow. Uh, it's so I don't terrible, know what to well, do. There's, yeah. there's no easy solution to this. It's really about make sure you've got your own backups offline. Mm. You might have incredible faith and trust in an IT management company to take care of things for you. And unbeknownst to you, they're the ones that are attacked in terms of this process here. So there's no easy solution. I think that offline backup, making sure you keep changing your passwords, there's all sorts of advice I can give, but sometimes these guys are very clever. They're going to just try and hit you anyway. And there's no way of going back to the mid-80s where we did everything by paper and pen and cash and just breathe deeply and and hope that doesn't affect you too many times uh, in your lifetime. Are you looking forward to getting 5G in your area? Well, it seems like we're already starting to talk about 6G. Tell us about what 6G might look like, Matt. I mean, it's still an idea on the horizon. There's no there's no real tech that's gone towards 6G yet, is there? Only ideas, only concepts. Yeah, right. I don't want to scare people and make people say, forget that 5G, I'm not going to buy that new phone, I'll go straight to 6G, thanks. We're probably talking about 2029, 2030, end of the decade sort of stuff okay. before 6G is available. But it is interesting how far in advance people start talking about the concepts and start planning for the concepts. Mm. 5G, as we know, we've talked about that a little bit. It's all about speed. It's all about concentration. So you can have more people or more devices, more importantly, in an area with 5G. So 6G will do a bit more of that. You'll have a bit more speed. Sure, what we think is fantastic speed today will be terribly slow speed tomorrow. So 6G will do a bit more of that. 6G will help a bit with that latency, but the real thing I think 6G will do is start to narrow down our ability to geotag. So getting to the point where it knows where you are, not within a few metres or a vague radius of I can find your phone within this 15, 20 metre radius, but narrowing it down further to the point where not via Bluetooth technology, but via geotagging, in other words, working out via trilateration from the towers where you are exactly, As you walk up to your car, it knows that James is half a metre away from the driver's door of his car because the car's connected via 6G and you're connected via the phone in your pocket via 6G. I'll unlock the door for you there because I know it's right there. Or driving up to the gate or your garage on your home, it detects that your car is at a certain distance accurately enough that it opens the gate or opens the garage door because of that detection of exactly where you are. So this That's sort of, pretty cool. Yeah, this location awareness really will be, I think, the big difference that we'll see with 6G over and above 5G. Mm. 5G does that now. Our phones do that now. We've got geotagging with our phones, but it's just not anywhere near the same accuracy level. I think that's where mm. we'll see the big difference with 6G. One of the things that people just say to me is, forget 5G, 6G. I just want to be able to make a phone call. Can I do that, please? (laughs) And unfortunately, a lot of these technologies are focused on people that have got ubiquitous connections. You've got connections through a major city. You've got lots of towers everywhere. Every street corner, every building's got a tower. It doesn't really help people much in regional areas that have got a tower 15 kilometres away. It's not going to help those people, unfortunately. And will there be any need for me to wear an aluminium foil hat? Oh, that's obviously the need now, James. Surely we should be doing that all the time. Well, I'm wearing it currently, so um, (laughs) I'll just keep it on. Now, listen, I'm so old, I remember setting my watch to the exact time on the phone. Remember the old, at the third stroke, it'll be 4.45 and 20 seconds. And that was how we set our phones in the 80s. It was regarded as the the correct time. Nowadays, we're probably synced straight to the internet anyway, and so the internet just does it on your your phones and your uh, watches anyway. But but to what precision? Uh, A standard stopwatch that I use goes to about a hundredth of a second. The top of the line one will take me to a thousandth of a second. But if you really want accuracy, you want an atomic-based clock, and and often they're they're cesium-based, they'll time to a billionth of a second. 
Now that's accuracy. But what is the use of that level of, of accuracy and timing, Matt? Well, I'm a bit the same as you. I used to go around and ring double one nine four and set every clock in the house yeah, to the I right time. The number. Yeah, yeah. Daylight saving, <laughs> you'd go and change the clocks and make sure they're right. And it didn't mean that I was necessarily on time for things, but I knew exactly how late I was yeah. when I got to things. Yeah, yeah so that's what it's about. It, it was just one of those things. Now, of course, so many things are connected to the internet. In fact, in this room we're sitting in now, there's a clock in here that's connected to the internet and it's accurate to 200 milliseconds, which sounds very pathetic really compared to, say, an atomic clock. I reckon 200 milliseconds is pretty good. It's yeah. not too bad. But in the scheme of things, we think, sure, being accurate to a few seconds, 200 milliseconds, whatever, but GPS is something that needs an incredibly accurate clock. When we've got satellites, and there's usually 24 satellites up in the air that are serving our GPS needs so that we can see as a human on the ground with our GPS device, whether it be our phone or our car, we need to be able to see four satellites to get an accurate reading of where we are. And that uses trilateration, which I mentioned a minute ago. So effectively, we're driving around, we're looking at that, and those satellites have got clocks that are very accurate to within 14 nanoseconds, an accuracy level they're, they're at. And then they feed information to our GPS and tell us exactly where we are. Now, that's all well and good. And so we go about our day and we've got that accuracy of clocks. But one of the things that's really important is to try and get that accuracy as we go further and further into deep space. Yeah. And we're now at a stage where we're sending probes deep into space to we go are. and check stuff out yeah, yeah right now those clocks on satellites are kept accurate not just by the fact they've got an accurate clock on board which they do have but they keep checking back to earth and say hey i've got the time as and back comes response from earth no you idiot you're out by nanosecond fix up your clock will you <laughs> so twice a day those satellites come back to earth and check their times which sounds a bit of overkill but again one nanosecond when you're trying to detect a location when those radio waves are travelling at the speed of light, yeah. one nanosecond is about 30 centimetres. So you can understand that you're out by a few nanoseconds, suddenly the location where you thought you were is out by 30 centimetres each nanosecond. When we start to go to space probes and think of Voyager 1, so Voyager 1, 1977, yeah, 77, it was, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. sent off. So it's at the moment somewhere in the vicinity of 23 million kilometres from Earth. Yeah, because it's actually left our the, the borders of our solar system. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So... Where is that? How do we know where it is? It's still using that same concept. It's still sending back basically information, a stream of information, comparing it to clocks on the ground and sending that information back to say, where are you? Now, the atomic clock on that is accurate to a certain level, but again, it was only the accuracy level of 1977 because we haven't been able to send out a little probe and say, update your clock on there. <laughs> but if that clock was out by a little bit, so in other words, we're talking about clocks that might be out back in those days, one second every 100 years, then that probe, if it hadn't been updated, could be out by 132,000 kilometres. So where we think it is yeah. might be out by that sort of distance. What NASA's working on at the moment is a deep space atomic clock project. And again, that accuracy of one second every 40 million years is kind of the level that they're trying to achieve with a little tiny thing that's the size of a toaster. Now, we've got clocks on the ground that are accurate to one second within the life of the universe, but they're huge clocks. They're sort of bigger than a refrigerator size clocks. So to get something small enough to send off in a probe, that's the real objective at the moment of NASA to get that level of accuracy in that small clock. Yeah, right. Now, when you're talking about inaccuracies and whatnot, this is not including the the dilation that we get, the time dilation from special relativity. Now, for I won't go into too much detail, but but for things like these deep space probes, they're travelling at say thirty thousand, somewhere between thirty thousand and fifty thousand kilometres an hour, which is very fast for a spaceship, but it's not 
relativistically fast. However, they will undergo some degree of time dilation because they are travelling fast. Yeah. So what you're talking about isn't to do with that. Well, <laughs> it gets tricky because you've got all of these accuracies or level of stability, as they're called, in the clock. They're also taking into account the calculations needed for Einstein's special theory of relativity. Right. So on top of that, you need to have a very accurate clock then you need to have a couple of mathematicians hanging around doing nothing for, for a little bit of time to do the calculations to make sure that the clock is accurate, allowing for the little tiny percentage of the speed of light that they're travelling at to make sure when you're getting down to those nanoseconds, that's where it starts to count. The accuracy level of the clocks when they sent off Voyager was one second every hundred years. So you think that's pretty uh, accurate, one second every hundred years, yeah. that's pretty good. Yeah, but again, that can be a huge difference in distance when you start to have something going out there for a number of years. Whereas now the clocks they're at the level of accuracy they're at is one second every 14 million years. Nowhere near the atomic clocks on the ground, but not too yeah. bad when you send off into space. Wow. So the implications of being a little bit short on time, huh? Well, that's right. And again, even at one second per 100 years, just getting to Mars, for example, yeah. if that was the only accuracy level you had, you might be out where you're going to land your Mars cruiser, you might be out by 1,800 kilometres. So where you think you're going to land, mm. you're 1,800 kilometres to Holy another smokes. point. On to something that's a little bit less of a, of a brain bender. Have you ever ridden a bird scooter? When I first read that, I thought, what the hell? What the hell is a bird scooter? Now, Bird is about to introduce a pilot program for electric wheelchairs and mobility rentals. Perhaps you'd like to explain what, what a bird scooter is, first of all. Bird is a brand that actually has scooters that are hanging around lots of cities overseas. So there's companies like Lime, like Bird. You put their app on your phone, you walk up to the scooter and you scan the QR code and jump on the scooter and pay your dollar every five minutes or whatever it might be. So it's a lot less than what my imagination was doing just before. You were thinking of something that could fly, you jumped yeah, on the scooter and the next yeah, thing you know, you're in the wings. air like maybe, a bird. Maybe it didn't fly, maybe maybe just had wings and they flapped as I rode in a scooter, but yeah. Well, that's not a bad either. It was I can, pretty cool. I can live with that one. <laughs> so, <laughs> like Spokey Dokes, but more impressive. No, that's right. So Bird is a company that's into that whole rental mobility space. But one of the things I've noticed this myself, when you're riding some of these scooters around overseas, I've got the kids with me having a great time, going up on footpaths or sidewalks, as you probably shouldn't be doing, and there's some people that maybe aren't as agile and mobile who have a few gentle, persuasive words to you to say, could you please politely move out of the road, because <laughs> they're worried about you knocking them over. So what Bird's about to do in New York is start a trial with not scooter rentals, but three-wheeler and wheelchair rentals. So you'll be able to walk up to somewhere on the footpath and there'll be a nice little transport three-wheeler or a nice little wheelchair and you'll be able to scan your QR code, jump in the wheelchair and off you go at a sensible pace to get from one shop to another. So again, it's helping out people that aren't as agile or as mobile in the communities to get from point A to point B using the same concept as a bird scooter. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, a great idea. And um, listen, it's certainly a, a, another sort of emergency option. Let's say um, these mobility scooters, they can break down. Um, that can really be confining for someone who's waiting for their mobility scooter to be repaired. But yeah. if, if you know that there are dotted around the, the neighbourhood uh, locations where you can pick one up. So this whole area is called micro-mobility, and this is going to be a boom area. I think it already is a boom area. So micro-mobility is going to be scooters. It's going to be the higher bicycles we've talked about. It's going to be wheelchairs. It's going to be just those little mobility devices. All of this 
And hopefully as we get to the stage where we do less commuting in cities, rather than driving half an hour to go into work or to do our shopping, you're doing less of this commuting, you're reducing the distances that you're travelling, then micromobility is going to be a really big part of that picture. Yeah, yeah. Well, watch this space, folks. iPhone is set uh, for its next model and devotees are asking what it's going to look like when it comes out in September. What's the next iPhone going to look like? I do wonder whether Apple deliberately just leaks some information. Oh no, our latest iPhone information has been leaked. How terrible. Maybe people will talk about it now. <laughs> so I do wonder whether we're just falling into the trap, James, and we're just doing exactly what Apple wants us to do by talking about this sort of stuff. <laughs> but the new iPhone, it'll be called the 12S apparently, not the 13. 13 would be a terrible number. I, didn't th- I don't think they'd sell any in China <laughs> if they called it the 13. So it would, it would have to either be the 12 now as it is and then jump to 14 or jump to another number or go the 12S, because sometimes Apple do do an S as their in-between models. But effectively, for people that have got the 12 range now, or are familiar with the 12 range, you've got the Mini, the Standard 12, the Pro, and the 12 Pro Max. They'll come out in the 12S range with effectively those four same models. They've obviously found them successful enough across those four different physical sizes to stick with those. The main thing that will change will be the notch, the camera notch. So where the cameras sit on the back of them, Mm. two cameras on the Mini and the 12 and three cameras on the Pro and the Pro Max, they'll change a little bit. And the rumour mill has got those protruding a little bit further and actually being a little bit larger in those squares. Now, what that means probably in particular with the protrusion coming out a bit further, is you might get better cameras, but better zoom on those cameras. Ah. Because as you get a bit more depth in those cameras, that's the big challenge for phone manufacturers. When you've got a zoom, you want a longer lens to be able to get a better zoom, but of course you want to keep the phone as thin as possible. The way they do that is to make the phone thin and have a bit of a protrusion where the camera is. So given the fact that there's some rumours about that protrusion being bigger, that's my guess there is that that will mean a better zoom level on that camera and more cameras on there. Again, Samsung's got some pretty impressive cameras at the moment, so they're probably feeling the heat from Samsung and want to be able to turn up the level on their camera as well. Don't have any other specs for you at this stage. I'll keep people updated as we go forward. Probably September, October, back to a normal sort of time frame this year. Last year was delayed a little bit, but this year we'll see how we go with that. More information will come out probably leaked by Apple, but we'll see that information come through and I'll keep feeding it through to our listeners. Yeah, well, I guess it would make people like Captain Kirk jealous uh, of what he did back in the 60s uh, uh, to what we've got right now. Probably. In the 2020s. The idea of car ownership is getting a bit of a shake-up in the Netherlands. This concept is going to rattle some Aussies, no doubt. Car sharing. We've talked about almost this concept, but this goes a step further. We talked about a concept before, James, where you don't own your car. You just pay a weekly or a monthly fee to use that car, hand it back if you're not using it, change to a different model, whatever. This is a similar concept by a company called Lincoln Co., but they've taken it a step further. They say, don't go and fork out for that car, pay your monthly fee for it. And they're talking euros here. They're saying a car that might be worth 39,000 euros, for example, pay 500 euros each month. So that might be similar to what you might pay on a lease fee. It covers all its maintenance, covers its registration. So you might take that as a reasonable option. And again, you can hand it back if you don't want to use it. But this goes a step further. When you're not using your car, so for example, you're driving to work and you park in the basement of your high-rise building at work and it's there at 7 o'clock in the morning because you've got to beat the traffic and get to work and it sits there from 7 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock that night when you finally get out of that place and get to drive back home, that car's just sitting there doing absolutely nothing. Lincoln Co. say it should be doing something. Maybe you, as the owner of that car, could actually make some money out of it. So you can actually share that car out 
a bit like a Airbnb, for example, except for cars. And someone can come along and take that car. They don't have to come and meet you. They don't have to see you in person. They don't have to get keys off you. You share a digital key. They walk up to their car with their phone. They get into it with their digital key and they drive it around. And automatically you're paid maybe five euros an hour to actually have that car being used during the day. If you leased it out enough during the day, you'd actually get your 500 euros back and a little bit more from other people using your car. Yeah. Are you, are you comfortable with that? Yeah. Are you comfortable with that? Because I like the convenience of going, oh, I'm at work, but I've just got to duck out quickly to do something. And you know, obviously you won't be able to do that if your car is 5, 10, 15 kilometres away. But uh, yeah. Well, it could be anywhere away. You don't know. And, and what's it being used for? It could, <laughs> could be used for be that bank robbery state. around the corner. And who knows? But it's a concept born of the idea that cars are sitting in mm. car parks or at workplaces for most of their lives. They're not actually being used to drive from A to B, but we just like that convenience, don't we? I want to duck out mm. of work, duck down and pick up something from the shops or one of my kids needs me, I'll just rip around the corner and see him in the car. Oh no, I haven't got it there anymore. You would have to actually rethink the way you did things. I love the concept. I love the idea of it. And imagine the number of cars or the fewer number of cars we would need in our on our planet in total might be good for car manufacturers, but the concept is great. Yeah. But yeah, downsizing the number of cars, I like that idea. Yeah, but yeah. imagine trying to just get your head wrapped around. I walk out. Oh no, my car's not there. Or even at your home, for example, you might have people come and pick it up from your home. Are you comfortable with that? It's mm. a different concept. Mm. And I can imagine that uh, I'd be leaving post-it notes on it. Uh, please don't touch the butter menthols in the um, <laughs> in the centre console. Well, that's a good point. What about if it comes back with some butter menthols that have yeah, been sucked on, stuck go. to the centre console? Oh, yeah. you know, how do you cope with that? Someone else's fries dropped down the side of the sea. Oh. Yeah. Anyway. Which you don't find for a month. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, folks, it's yibbity yibbity. That's all, folks, for another week with Tech Talk with Matt Dickerson. Thanks once again, Matt, for holding your ha- our hands through another meander through Tomorrowland. My pleasure. Always is, James. My pleasure. And I'm James Eddy, and we're looking forward to you logging on again next week for another great episode of Tech Talk. Yibbity Yibbida is a registered trademark of the Looney Tunes franchise. Thank you very much. <laughs>